Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Ableton Cast. I'm Kevin, and I just wanted to say a couple things right off the bat. One, I wanted to say special thanks to our sponsor, which is Recording Studio Rockstars Podcast. Uh, that's Lid Shaw. He does an amazing podcast. If you haven't heard it, please check it out. And also wanted to say congratulations to Lidge because he's he's been having a sort of legal battle in Nashville uh, to be able to work from home in his home studio. And he just won after probably months, maybe even years. I don't know how long it's been going on. But I just wanted to say congratulations to Lidge for, uh, for not giving up. And, uh, you know, that's going to make a massive difference to Lidge and his community. Uh, the l last thing I wanted to say was this is just a little tip. It's a little bit nerdy, but if you're like me, who likes to use Ableton in Session View. Uh, if you want to send out program changes whilst you're playing live, um, obviously Ableton will let you do this. And it's, uh, it's pretty straightforward just to send out like one single program change so that it, you know, you're sending that to your hardware and it goes to the right preset. Uh, but if you want to be able to do more than that, if you want to be able to do more than one preset per scene uh, in Ableton Session View, I discovered that there's a Max for Live device called CC to program change. And if you download that, you can do that and you can do multiple changes uh, per scene, which is pretty amazing. Okay, so today on the podcast, I've got a, I've got a really awesome guest. His name is Kojo Samuel, and Kojo does a lot. And instead of me trying to explain everything that he does, I thought I'd just get you to explain it. So, Kojo, welcome to the show. And can you just kind of tell people what you do? Hey, great! Thanks for having me, man. Um, yeah, so um, I am a music director. Um, I work with I guess primarily kind of top 40 type of um, acts um, based in the UK. Um, and I guess, I mean, we all know what MDs are, but um, for people that don't, my job is to help transfer um, a recorded piece of work into a live piece of work. So um, I deal with the kind of creative aspect of that, the technical aspect of that, and everything in between, really. Um, so yeah, that's it in a nutshell of sorts. So is it something, do you spend a lot of time listening to sort of like stems, you know, from from an album, trying to figure out how you're going to like sort of uh, translate that to the live show? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the sort of first part. I mean, initially, it's like the whole kind of process really begins as a conversation, you know, um, and that's between yourself, management, the artist, whoever the wider team is, you know about what it is they're trying to achieve um, from their live kind of performances. You know, um, that might be different for different artists at different stages of their career. Um, but yeah, that's sort of like, once you've kind of established that, one of the first things I need is this is the stems. And um, by way of, you know, trying to kind of get, get a grip of the music, you'll be listening to obviously the music, but then also the stems and everything over and over again as much as you can, um, you know, until you're sort of like ready to start piecing this show or this performance or whatever together and whatever, guys, that's going to be. Yeah, cool. So I wondered if we could rewind a little bit to find out how you sort of got started with music. Um, sure, You sure. sound like you're probably not originally from the UK, like myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm from Canada and I think you're maybe oh, from... Okay. Yeah, I think you're from America. Is that right? Yeah, I am. I'm from Los Angeles originally, um, but I have been in the UK for many, many years. Um, I'd say close to 30 now, if not 30. But um, I am from yeah Los Angeles originally. Okay, so how did you end up in the UK? So I guess how I ended up here is, I guess, kind of tied into my background in that um, I grew up in a musical family, like a lot of people, I guess. Um, and um, my mother is a singer um, and she had been quite successful in the UK in the late 60s. Um, she had a few hit records and things of that nature. And um, long story short, um, at a particular time, she had moved back to America and that's where I was born and I was originally raised until sort of like early teens. And um, 
at a point in time in her career, she had decided she wanted to move back to the UK because that's where she had had her best times, um, you know, had most of her successes. So I kind of came back with her as a kind of young teenager, whatnot. And that's how I got to the UK. And I've stayed ever since. Right. And what instrument did you first start playing? When you were younger, oh God! So um, I kind of bashed around with everything, you know. Um, my, my my father was a bass player, um, my mother being a singer. So I kind of grew up around studios and rehearsal rooms and things of that nature. So I used to just have a bash around everything. I think that the first instrument I remember kind of um, thinking, "Oh, I want to play this," was drums. I think like a lot of people because it's such an accessible instrument. Um, then keys became a thing, you know, um, and I kind of experimented with guitar and bass. My father was a bass player, so I kind of played around. But I would say round about my kind of mid to late teens, I kind of settled on keyboards as my main instrument. But I would dabble with some of the other instruments, guitar, um, bass a little less um, and whatnot. But yeah, mainly I'm a keyboard player. Yeah. Now, I could be wrong, but I thought I read your dad used to play with Crosby, Stills and Nash. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, correct. Correct. Yeah. In the 70s, he was with them for a good number of years. So, yeah, musically, I kind of grew up around lots of different types of music and different types of artists. Um, Yeah, when I was a kid. Right. Okay. So you were in Los Angeles and you come to the UK in in your Mm -hmm. teens. And -hmm. can you sort of explain... Um, to sort of, you know, how you got from that point to where you are now, sort of working with all these bigger artists? Sure. I mean, God, that's a long road. <laughs> but um, I guess in short, um, I, again, like I said, I always had, um, there was always equipment in my house, um, instruments. Um, and at one point in time, we got a Porter studio. Um, I remember my mom got a Porter studio for whatever reason. Um, and I just started messing around on that. Um, and I spent, you know, I guess the best part of my teen years, you know, I guess gaining an interest in equipment and gear and buying drum machines and then sequencers when they came out and samplers and whatnot. And I, you know, over the course of maybe five, six years, I kind of developed into, you know, a producer. That's what I decided I wanted to do. Um, That seemed to be what was the most interesting to me, more so than even a performer. Even though I always played, um, I I just liked making music and putting music together. So um, that was my entry into um, making music. And then I guess to really go shortly into it, I kind of, you know, started doing bits and pieces around town, mixes, remixes, different things. And I, uh, yeah, I guess I'm going to try and cut this real short, but I had a production career to whereby I did everything you're supposed to do when you're a young up and coming producer. So I guess that entails, you know, getting managers and, you know, getting a publishing deal and, um, working with artists and signed artists and writing session after writing session. Can I ask one question, sorry? Did you go to school? Was there anything that you went to sort of college or university for? You know what? It's really funny. I, um, I obviously, I know there's lots of courses around now for sort of like music technology and things of that nature, but you know, we're going back sort of like quite a bit. I'm an older guy. So, (laughs) so we're going back to like the kind of, I guess, mid to late eighties. And um, at that particular time, it was really like you did jazz or classical. And that was pretty much it. There was no sort of music technology skills. So I'd been in my house sort of like I bought some of the early kind of equipment that you could buy myself. So things like a Dr. Rhythm was was my drum machine. Tascam 244 was the Porter studio I was using. I remember buying my first like sequencer, which was Cubase on an Atari before DAWs. Do you know what I mean? And actually, I think before that, I actually had an Ensonic EPS, which was, I believe, the first sampling sequencer that existed. (laughs) So, I mean... um, I, at an early age, I had this kind of technical production type of interest. So even though I was learning instrumentation and composition at that particular time, I really wanted to make music. I wanted to create music with technology. And there was no sort of outlets for that. Um, I recall, I don't know if it still exists, but there was a school called Gateway at the time, um, Gateway Recording School. Um, and it was just starting. And if I recall 
like <laughs> it's funny because I came across like a certificate from them like must have been a few months ago doing a clear out and it was um I must have been like 14 doing this sort of like um you know mixing an engineering course and I remember being the youngest person there anyway but it was literally like in somebody's front room and there was like six or seven people. Um, but that's the only thing I ever did in that respect. Um, and then, as I said, it's like when I sort of, I did A-levels and I, I studied composition at that level and I was interested in music and arranging music and playing music. But, you know, at sort of 18, I just thought, let me just jump into the business because I'd been, you know, I had a lot of um, knowledge of studios and equipment and gear and whatnot, which at that particular time, a lot of young people didn't really. I was just, I was into it. So I just figured, well, I might as well start this career. Um, so yeah, that's how I started, you know, making music or being a professional really. Yeah. Well, it must be like sort of quite mind boggling to see all the information that is out there now, you know, with all the courses and YouTube videos that there are you know, to think back to if you would have had that same information when you were 18, you know, how much oh easier my. that would have made oh your life, my. right? Oh my God, if I'd had it at 15, 16, I mean, it was, it's just incredible. It's like, I think back to sort of like, I remember one of the first keyboards I bought was like a DX7. And I remember trying to fucking figure out, you know, FM synthesis, um, you know, with that little badly written manual that they had, um, you know, it was... Um, yeah, it was really, really difficult. Um, but that's in my job now as a music director when I'm working with a lot of young musicians and they're like, oh, how do I do this? How do I do that? How, I think to myself, just look it up. You know what I mean? You, yeah. you have it so easy because anything you want to know is basically a few clicks and maybe 15, 20 minutes of watching something away. So I can never really understand this kind of lack of knowledge that people sometimes have or these knowledge gaps because it's so easy. So yeah, it was very, very hard to learn something. If you wanted to learn about engineering or whatever, you either needed to know somebody, you needed to tape up, which I did at times, or you needed to read a book. <laughs> you know, yeah. It was as simple as that. You had to read a manual or you had to fiddle with some gear until you kind of knew what you were doing. But it was um, it was a lot harder, definitely. Yeah. Um, now you've worked with a lot of big artists. You've said that you work with sort of top 40 artists, but I mean, just a few that I've seen, you've worked with Jess Glynn, Rudimental, Ella Henderson, the Pussycat Dolls, mm. and that's just a few. But I wondered if you could just talk about a few others, uh, like a few of, of the other artists that you've worked with over, over the last number of years, which is quite a few. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I was, um, so I guess in this particular phase of my life um i had i had actually moved back to the states for a while um doing some production orientated projects and when i came back to the uk it's just everything had changed a lot and i think i'd kind of you know had my fill or at that particular time i was kind of done with the sort of um production scene in regards to writing a million songs and trying to get a cut on this a cut on that and whatnot and i was working on some projects and i fell into the um the live scene i just kind of fell in as you kind of do and um i was playing keyboards for sugar babes yeah. who at the time were a big group and um after sort of like three to four years on that project, um, I became the MD. I didn't have that much of an interest in MDing, but um, from early on in the rehearsal process of first doing that, I really sort of, I saw that like MDing was basically like producing a band really. And I thought to myself, yeah, I, I could do that. You know what I mean? This is, you know, fairly easy for me. And also regard to the technical aspects of aspects of it as well, which for me as a producer and as a young person who'd always been into gear and technology, it was it all came quite natural to me as opposed to a lot of people that maybe spent most of their time as musicians and instrumentalists. Maybe that side of things was a bit more secondary. So um, I kind of fell into doing Sugar Babes and from doing that, um, after a while, I just started getting more offers for projects exponentially, really. So... Um, in no particular order, um, I then did Plan B, um, Jesse J for a number of years, um, God, uh, Jesse Ware, um, James Morrison, um, obviously Jess Glenn, Rita Ora I've done, um, Ella Henderson, Rudimental, Stormzy, Dave. Yeah, wow. Um, 
I'm probably forgetting a lot of people, but um, sorry if I have. But yeah, lots of different people. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you did. You had some sort of involvement in the Stormzy Glastonbury performance. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I've been working with Stormzy since then. Really, um, I sort of I was music direct, director for that, and um, everything he's done kind of since then. I did a little bit on wireless, but mainly Glastonbury was where we kind of got properly involved. And yeah, yeah that was, that was obviously that went well for everybody. So, so, um, so can yeah. you um, sort of like just roughly tell us what, what happens? So Stormzy or management comes to you and says, we'd like you to sort of be involved with the Glastonbury uh, performance. Mm-hmm. What, what does your mind, what's some of the first things that your mind starts to think about for a gig like that? Well, yeah, I mean, for me, um, it was like, it we it was actually, okay, so before he did Glastonbury in 2019, in 2018, he headlined Wireless, which obviously isn't as big a festival, but it was still a headline performance. And um, that was the first time I was asked to be involved with him. And due to scheduling, I um, I couldn't be involved properly. I just helped out with some technical things. I recommended a playback tech who got involved, and I kind of came to a few rehearsals just to kind of see if I can, you know, do anything, (laughs) but I didn't really have enough time to do so. So with regards to Glastonbury, um, I was asked quite early. So there was a big run up. So luckily there was a bit of time. And um, for me, the idea was, okay, you know, we've got this massive platform with this massive artist at this time when he's really, you know, he's such an important cultural icon and representation of music in Britain, you know, I just thought we just have to try and do what we can to make this the best show possible. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So my my mindset is like then researching some of the other Glastonbury performances, um, you know, going to as many sort of equivalent type of live shows as possible and really trying to figure out what we can do to just make sure that we knock it out of the park, really. You know, yeah. um, was it, I can't, I feel like I did see uh, some of that performance and I'm just trying to like remember, was it mainly just like Stormzy on stage by himself for it? No. So, I mean, it's interesting. There's kind of two parts to it because of, um, I guess, the nature of his music and also, in particular on that particular record as well, um, two thirds of it was sort of like track based. Um, and then there was sort of like a middle segment, which was band based. Yeah. So, um, you know, the band based part, but I mean, for me, it's interesting, like the band section, which was always going to be a band section was actually the part that I was sort of least worried about doing and making good just simply because I know that you know, I, I've been doing that for years. You get in with a band, you rehearse, you come up with ideas, you do things, and you're going to try and make it as dope as possible, you know. Um, but I was really concerned with the non-band parts because um, I've been into hip-hop, and Storm's not a hip-hop artist, but I've been into rap music, whether it be, you know, hip-hop, grime, rap, whatever you want to call it, um, for years. And I felt that there was a bit of a gap you know a lot of the shows to me i thought musically sometimes you know it's, I, I thought that could it could be done better do you know what i mean i didn't want yeah. a show that was stop start stop start stop start stop start and in this next track in this next track so you know i kind of knew that i wanted to put together a show that kind of flowed and moved like it was a band even if there wasn't a band there do you know what i mean so it, it was about putting together an actual show and something that ran as a show as opposed to a glorified DJ set, you know, with lots of flash and lights behind it. So, um, yeah, that, that, that was, that was my role. So it was to sort of put together everything to do with the music, obviously the band part, but then also the non-band parts and kind of make it happen and move in an interesting way. So that was also would be the interludes, the, um, the intros, the outros, all, all that type of stuff, all those other things that you need to make a show good beyond PA tracks, basically. Yeah, sure. So I think I I think Stormzy uses Ableton for playback. I could be wrong. Yeah, no, he does. He does. I mean, um, I switched to Ableton um, maybe a few years ago, really, um, three, four, five years ago or whatever. Um, and then I've been using Ableton um, as my main DAW since then. And of course, so with that, and that that extends to the actual show was all run off of um Ableton, yeah. Yeah. So with the Storms' show, were you running Ableton? Were you running it in session view, or arrangement view? So okay. So with Stormzy's show, um, we have 
or had an amazing playback tech called Scott Barnett working um, on the show with me. Um, and the way things would work was that I would, because um, I'm very program intensive myself anyway. Yeah. So um, I would basically do all the re- do all the programming, do whatever, um, whether it be with the band or just with the tracks or whatnot. And then I would bounce him stems. Um, so these would be then simplified. They wouldn't be like, you know, 30, 40, you know, stems per song or whatever. I'd, I'd break them down to like drums, music, bass, you know, leads, whatever, whatever it was going to be. Um, and I would then give those to Scott and he would build a playback session. But his playback session was actually a mixture of both. So essentially it's run in session view, yeah. but um, we'd also have a complete copy also an arrangement view also because obviously as you know with session view it's great it's stable it's very easy to navigate um you know particularly with controllers and whatnot you know it works really well for that but where it can be a bit of a hassle is when an artist is like oh can we just change that bit there and okay we need to do something in the middle and it's like you don't yes. want to be scrolling and dragging <laughs> and and whatever so that was one of the reasons and then also you know, we had a bit of a situation with that whereby um, at times we wanted to be able to do some DJ orientated type of things to whereby the DJ would do a wheel up or something like that. Or he would, you know, do a, you know, he'd have a, he'd, ha- he'd have access for a few different bits and pieces. So it made more sense for those things to happen as clips than it would be for them to be in the arrange view. So that's essentially how we'd, ha- how we'd had it set up, but um, a mixture of both. And I've sort of adopted that way of working for other things I do as well. So um, again, like I said, I will essentially bring my stems into an arrangement view session. Um, and then I will duplicate. And once everything is kind of neat and tidy and whatnot, I'll kind of, you know, consolidate that file. And then um, I'll put those stems into a session view arrangement. So we've got them basically best of both worlds, I think. Yeah, sure. That sounds, that sounds really, really cool. Um, mm. Was Was Scott, triggering things um did you have it set up so that he would need to kind of trigger trigger each song yeah yeah we'd always have playback from um from playback world at times there might be one or two songs that the dj would trigger um but then like he so he'd have a controller also but then you know that was certain things were cleverly disabled because you know you don't want like the dj randomly hitting something or fucking up something or, you know yeah, or just whatever sure. in the middle of a, of, of a set um so there would be very limp there was like one or two things that he would trigger because they would do like little scratching parts and things that would kind of move a bit differently but um yeah 90 percent of the playback came from playback world yeah sure wow so have you used ableton a fair bit with other artists as well yeah yeah i mean i'm an ableton user now man i've i I really fell in love with it you know um my um my background with sequencers as well i guess as you can imagine is it just goes back so far but um i'd i've worked with so many different programs and DAWs over the years and um again I don't know how far deep into that you want to go but long story short I had been reluctantly using Logic for a number of years I think um yeah because so as I mentioned earlier I started using Cubase on Atari when it was before they even had DAWs really and um when DAWs came to pass it made sense for me to use Cubase and at a time, I kind of got sick of using, um, well, I didn't get sick of it, actually. is What it was is I was working in the States a lot, and um, everybody there used MPCs. And they looked at me like, why are you using a computer to make music? Yeah, <laughs> And I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, well, I can do this, I can do that, and whatever. And, you know, the salient thing was like, yeah, but that's not the sound that anybody is liking. Like, so, so many of the kind of like dance or urban orientated type of music that I was around, everybody was using MPCs. So, um I just thought, well, God, if it's good enough for Timberland and Dre and the Neptunes, it's got to be good enough for me, right? So yeah. I, so I, I switched to um, using MPCs with a DAW, and at that particular time, I chose Nuendo because um, the cost of Pro Tools then was still really prohibitive, really. Um, and long story short, that was my setup for a number of years, like MPC and um, you know for audio, I was using Nuendo, which was basically you know, supposed to be Cubase's daddy, but it never ended up being that. And 
Yeah, I, I don't know what happened with Nuendo. And even Cubase, to be quite honest with you, because there was a time when it was really just Cubase and Logic. Um, and then, of course, Pro Tools. But um, I then sort of started working in the live world and everybody used um, Logic, like literally everybody. So it became apparent when I then started MD and it was like, well... I'm going to have to use Logic because obviously once Apple took over eMagic, you know, that was really your only option on the Mac really at that particular time was yeah. Logic or that was the best option. So I started using Logic. Um, I never liked it. You know, I, I, all I can say is I never really, I used it and got quicker at it and quicker at it and better at it, but I just never liked it, man. I just found that like things I could do with a Q, with Cubase on a PC were really hard um, on Logic, um, I found that it was, un I, I, I couldn't understand why I would drag in maybe 12 to 20 stems and just be playing back sometimes and I'd be getting that spinning ball of death or things yeah, not yeah. working or crashes and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, I would have full mixes running <laughs> before with like tons of plugins and soft synths and whatnot and not be having these problems. So why am I having these problems with Logic? So... I never really loved it. And um, more importantly, when it was time to do creative things, you know, which would which is a big part of MD. And, you know, it's like beyond getting the stems and lining everything up. There's a time at which it's like, OK, what's your idea? What what are you going to do here? And that's when you sort of get into a creative mode. And I found it really difficult to just do simple things, make beats, uh, make music. I just didn't, it just never really worked for me. And I remember it clearly. I was working on a project. It was actually rudimental. I was working with, with rudimental and um, we were putting together the show, um, one of their shows. And it just, logic was just, at that time I was still, I was working with playback text and using, um, Ableton for playback because it had sort of like, you know, I'd say over the past five to seven, eight years, it's really gained in popularity yeah. for playback use. So I'd been using it for that with different people quite a bit, but I wasn't using it. And, um, you know, I think as sort of like people like Bruno Mars and Beyonce and as those shows got more complex, there would just be more and more things that you needed to do with a doll that like... I just logic kept just kind of tripping itself over. I remember with rudimental, they'd had uh, um, they'd had another MD beforehand. So um, and then when I started, they hadn't um, they hadn't done anything for like three or four years. So if, you, if just just to give you an example, there might be four songs and like a little medley, or maybe three, and they might you and I might have just gotten the original stems from the label, and they might say, "Oh, hey, can we use um the version that we used to do in you know like on this tour?" So I'd need to drag in another version that they had, and then he'd be like, "Oh, actually, but that bit's missing from the stems," and okay, yeah, I'd have to drag that in. So you'd end up with these sort of really really big sessions with um maybe sometimes a hundred and something tracks across different songs, obviously. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then they might be like, oh, actually, you know, you know, when we do our DJ sets, we do that three BPM faster. Um, but that other song, we do at the regular tempo. And in Logic, when you're trying to do that stuff, yeah, you, speeding up or slowing down is not great. <laughs> oh, it shits his pants. Do you know what I mean? It just, <laughs> it just, it just, it just wasn't working. It was just like, it just, it just, you know, I had to do so many workarounds and so many weird things, even just silly things like when you want to ramp up from you want you want to ramp from one song to another song. You want to ramp up a bit. You want to ramp down a bit, and then you would need to change the key of one song and then change the tempo of another, and that type of thing in one session in Logic just doesn't work. So, um, I'd been working with um, a few friends of mine that worked in the Jess Glenn band had switched to um, Ableton, and they were pre they were previous. Um, logic users and more and more people were talking about it and i'd um it's funny because i'd gotten free copies of ableton before like you know buying different pieces of gear and whatnot and i'd played around with it and um usually in session view you know and i remember a few times yeah. thinking, oh this is fun this is fun this is great but i just i just saw it as kind of like a dj tool i hadn't really i didn't think about it oh it's not a serious dog because all i saw was like session view so i didn't really get into it again and um, but I just started hearing more and more and more about it. And um, after that experience, I was like, you know what? I need to find another way. Like this is not good enough for me to. I can't be sitting around waiting for 
you know, the spinning ball of death when I've got these big sessions and I'm doing like, you know, hour and a half, two hour shows and, you know, bouncing things out took forever. And I just, you know, the biggest thing for me not switching was just having time, you know, because um, when you get quick on something, you know, for somebody like myself, that's usually working between four to six kind of high end projects at a time. I don't always have time to yeah, learn something new, you know, and um, I could be called or asked to sort of like, oh, can we have this version of that? Oh, we need to change this. So that happens like all the time. So I didn't really, that's one, that was one of the reasons it took me a long time to switch, but I found a gap, gap in my diary and I was like, you know what, let me, let me give this a shot. Let me kind of get into it. And um, yeah, that's how I decided to kind of get into it. And quite quickly after sort of like going through some tutorials as you do, and we're going through a bunch of tutorials and getting into it, I was like, Oh my God, I get it. I see what everybody's been been talking about. And um, yeah, just sort of started learning it and really, yeah, just really actually started loving it, to be quite honest with you, which is, I think it's an important part of using a piece of gear. You have to like it. You have to enjoy working with it. It's like an instrument. It's your main tool. And um, I found working in Ableton really like, really fluid. I found it really stable. Um I found from a creative point of view, when I wanted to do things, it was so much easier. You know what I mean? It was so much more geared towards um, making music um, from a creative aspect. So I got I got the push with it when I bought it. And, um, oh, nice. Started, yeah, so started using that a lot as well. And yeah, just from that point on, everything I've been, I, I, I think, I've, as I said, I maybe had a month to six week win, window when I um, switched over and then I sort of like the main projects I was working on, I sort of converted everything to Ableton projects and I just kind of just went from there and that was it. Oh, that, that's really cool. Um, I'm not sure how involved you get with, with the musicians and the sounds that they use, but I was just kind of curious, say for an artist like Jess Glynn, because I'm a keyboard player, I'm asking this, but you ah, know, the, yeah, sure. um, so there's like a fair bit of piano uh, in in her stuff, and I wondered sort of like how specific you are, say, with the keys player to say like, well, look, these are the sounds that we need, and it's either got to be hardware or software. You know, maybe like oh. a, like a native instruments, like you know, like like the giant or, or absolutely, yeah. So I was just wondering, um, is that something that you get involved with with the sort of individual yeah. musicians to say, I think we need to use these sounds. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's a big part of your job. I mean, essentially, you're responsible for how everything sounds, you know, <laughs> like every aspect of that is really under your watch. So I think it depends upon who the MD is um, on how much specifics they have on different parts. Maybe you might bring in other people, to, you know, in other areas and maybe specialize. But for me, as a keyboard player, um, when I, you know, that was one of my sort of attributes when I first started playing was that... Um, when I joined Sugar Babes, they needed somebody that, um, that particular album, there was very access virus intensive and lots of analog. And that was something I'd had an access virus. I could program really well. I knew analog really well. So that was one of my assets, being able to sort of program sounds and nail sounds. And that's something that in the live world, it really hadn't been done that much at that particular time. It was kind of like there was lots of guys just using presets and, oh, that's kind of like it. Let's just use that. And yeah. I was like, no, it's not like it at all. Do you know what I mean? And I would be like, well, no, what you have to do is you tweak this, 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 whatever. And then and people were like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And it wasn't really amazing to me. That's just what I did every day. So, um, so yeah, so in particular for me, that is something I'm very much involved with. And um, yeah, but I will work with the musician to kind of get the best out of their gear. Um, and um, yeah, it, it depends on who it is and what they have, um, how deep into that will go. But um, yeah, that, that's very much a part of what I do. And in, actually with keyboards in particular, to be honest with you. Yeah. So um, do a lot of the keyboard players that you're working with, are they mainly just using hardware or are they using a combination of sort of hardware and software? I would say at this stage, it's a combination if it can be a good combination. The reason I say that is because at this stage, like computers are just a lot more reliable than they were, yeah. um, you know, previously, five, six, seven, eight years ago, you know, before when people were trying to use, I would get gigs because of people's main stage rigs crashing and people and things of that nature and what <laughs> whatnot. So I think that like now um, it's a lot more possible, but I would say that, you know, I'm really a big believer in the ear over the gear sometimes. And I think that like 
a lot of things you can actually you can replicate so much with you know hard, with hardware as opposed to the software if you know what you're doing and if you can yeah. actually program there's certain things obviously like you said like something like a piano yeah you might need a specific piano um that's really really specialized for um you know depending on the song or depending on how the particular performance or whatever it is but for the most part you know i've found that we can get good enough with what everybody has in terms of hardware because it's just a bit of tweaking here and there and whatnot and you're kind of you're pretty much there i think that you don't want to and you don't want to you don't want to add any extra complications for no reason that that's what i would say yeah you know um but then now i think about it though on with stormzy for example there are a couple of things that we've done recently where um, the keyboard player would end up using um, Keyscape or something like that for the yeah, pianos because sure. it's so much better. And it might have been just a one-off thing rather than a full show. And, you know, he had it in his rig and it made sense and it was really easy, particularly for uprights. You know, I think it's really hard to get a good upright sound out of um, out of most hardware. Most hardware will have, you know, for live purposes anyway, a um, a decent grand piano. But I think uprights can be a lot trickier. Sure. Oh man, that sounds that sounds like an awesome job that you have. That sounds really yeah, cool. Can be, can be <laughs> when it all works because when it doesn't, it's all your fault. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was wondering, um, is Ableton sending out program changes? Like, say, say for the keyboards, for example, would it be sending out like program changes to change presets, or is it usually the musicians doing the sort of like preset changes themselves? Yeah, so again, that has um there's been times at which um we've kind of set it up. But like I said, I'll I'll usually work with a playback tech depending on um who it is and what the gig is and what the how long the gig is and whatever. But at times we'll set up like program changes for the keyboards in particular um when needed and you know, but to be honest with you, and I guess this is where my kind of keyboard player um, mentality comes into it i really prefer each sort of unit to be individual um yeah. I, I just think that it's a bit more stable that way um i've had times when everybody says oh yeah program change yeah it's gonna, it's gonna take five minutes to end of the gig it's gonna it'll be fine it's gonna be fine and then you sit there for three or four days later and everybody's like okay that patch change is wrong okay that patch change is wrong okay that patch change is wrong and i'm yeah. just like it's 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 it, you know I, I'm yet to be in a situation where it's as smooth as I would like it to be, and I know as well from the perspective of, of a keyboard player, I you know I like to know that I've hit something and I've changed it and it works and it's all fine. But that's not to say that I don't ever do it. And it and again, if it was a really long set out tour when you know you had lots of time to program and there was going to be a number of dates and you could get it all right you know i i would sort of like be up for doing that um particularly for drummers i think drummers like you know program changes for electronics you know they, they really appreciate that because it's a it's a big deal sometimes doing a lot of energetic stuff on drums on one song and then having to switch to like like something like jess glenn you might be going from something that's quite electronic to something that's quite live sounding very quickly do you know what i mean and we yeah. might kind of go between those kind of worlds even within a song do you know what i mean because i like to have a good balance between what's live and what's electronic so um that can be quite tricky so um i, I would say like you know it depends you know yeah. Now, are you working with sort of like uh, dancers as well? Is that ever part of your kind of like portfolio of like having to sort of like take care of like the the, the choreographed stuff? I mean, as well? I won't do. You know, <laughs> I, I I won't be doing anything with dancers. <laughs> but um, I, I would say that like on a bigger scale show, like at you know that you, know, you have all these departments really. So as an MD, I'll be working with the show show you know, show designers or creative directors, and then also with choreographers to kind of do something that works as a whole performance. So say something with Pussycat Dolls, it's very kind of dance intensive. You will be working very closely with like the choreographer and even the band because they may be like, oh, can we have a hit here? And can we have another little accent here? And they might, you know, and I might have a situation where I might go down to rehearsals and just watch with my kind of laptop in my setup and just kind of see what everybody's doing because I might be like, oh, you know what? There's like a, they do a stomp there and it'd be great to have an effect there or they're doing a little shimmy there or something. It'd be good to have an effect there. And so you do have to kind of like, you know, work with them on that. But oftentimes the choreographers 
or the show designers will, will come to you and they'll be like, yeah, you know, we've added another four bars and we need a bit to go from this part to that part. And, you know, that just feels a bit weird. And can we have another one bar break, you know, before we go to that, because we can't get to that move in time. So, you know, you sort of do all those kind of things to kind of make the show work. Um, and that, yeah, that's a part of it as well. But as I said, I, I'm not choreographing anything myself. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, now with some of the artists that you're working with, do you ever have like any sort of like vocal, vocal cues that just the artist would hear any sort of like, you know, guiding things that would say kind of like verse, chorus and so on? Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean, that's for the artists and, um, and the, um, and the band I'll have like a, I usually have a band click, band cue, um, artist click, artist cue, you know, there might be vocal references in that, like in terms of if a song starts like right at the top of the, you know, if there's no music intro, then EQ. Yeah. So I might have, you know, I might have musical cues. There'll be, um, you know, a number of things, you know, obviously anywhere where there's a breakdown, you'll be putting clicks in and different people need different things. Obviously we try not to go too, too crazy, but sometimes the band like extra cues, um, you know, for different sections and particularly if um if there's um, not a whole lot of rehearsal time you know you have to kind of do things but somebody like for example say Rita Ora will be like really you know she she's happy to be told what to do like throughout the whole thing so you you know so there might be like okay go left here and then you know the, the choreographer might after the after we've rehearsed I might spend a bit of time with the choreographer and the show director and be like okay I need to put cues in for when she goes to here I need to put cues in for when she goes to there I need to put cues into so yeah that's all very much a part of it yeah sure now has it been a bit of a journey and process to learn how to communicate well with the bigger artists um you know what I, I think that that is a big important part of music directing anyway um I think that that whole communication and um, I'd say diplomacy of being a music director is the part that I think is the most in intangible and the, the, the most difficult part of it really, because I think that, you know, lots of people can, you know, work on an arrangement. Lots of people can come up with an intro. Lots of people can do all those things. You know what I mean? Um, not to say that there isn't any kind of craft in that I'm saying that there is and there's going to be different ways of doing it but sure like there's lots of people that can deal with those aspects of a live show like the creative parts of making music or even the technical parts you know anybody can get stems and line them up and put clicks in and cues and whatnot but like what actually is it I think is really really tricky is then being able to be that gateway between management the artist the label the band um, you're having to sort of like be this sort of like person in the middle of all of that and you're having to kind of politically kind of make everything work for everybody because there's going to be different issues with different segments at different times and that's and that's as I said that's band that's crew that's the artist that's the label that's management that's front of house that's monitors and um, I think it's a lot to deal with you know um, that's where for me I feel like I was um, one of the things that was you know made it um, I'm not gonna say easy but um, why I was sort of able to transition into music directing um, in a good way and kind of my career to kind of have worked the way it has is because I'd spent like 10 to 15 years before that um, as a producer and as a writer and, you know, having ton doing tons and tons of sessions and making records and being in charge of budgets and having to deal with labels and having to be a part of album projects. And, you know, just I'd had a lot of experience even before getting into it. So every now and again, I'll meet sort of like, you know, a young musician that might be 23, 24, and they say, oh, great, oh I'd love to do what you do. How can I do that? And I'm like, dude, like, yeah, like, I don't know what to tell you. I'm like, <laughs> I, I can tell you some of the technical parts of it, but I can't tell you how to deal with an artist that comes in and they're in a bad mood and they've yeah. had an argument with the drummer the, the day before and they want to get rid of them yet and still they have to rehearse, but their mind's not there because somebody said something to them on Twitter and they're pissed off and, you know, and then the management are trying to get them to do, you know, a vocal for something else that they don't want to do. Like, I, I can't like... I can't tell you how to manage all of that and kind of like piece all that together. And I think that's the part that's really, really tricky. Yeah. Yeah. That does sound really tricky, but that's cool to hear you say that. Cause I think, um, you know, there's like so many of those things that, um, you know, 
uh, we just wouldn't think about that that kind of goes along with the job that you're doing. You know, that, that you have to sort of, you have to be so many different things. You have to wear so many different hats. Absolutely. And, and, and still ultimately as well, and you're still responsible for the, um, the music, you know, anything that goes on that stage and where there's music playing, if something's not right, it's your fault. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's like, even if like, let's just say, fortunately, I'm I'm pretty techie. But even if I wasn't, do you know what I mean? If this, if something goes wrong with playback or a playback issue, everybody's like, Kojo, what happened? Why, why is that a problem? And I can't then say, oh, it's the playback tech's fault. And they're like, well, but you're the MD. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, you, you do have to. I think it's about taking responsibility. And I think that's one of the things I learned very early um, in my sort of pr- production career. It was sort of like, regardless of what happened, you know, you can't sort of like say, oh, well, the engineer told me that that snare was, you know, too quiet or that's the reason why it's too quiet now. I can't blame him because you're in charge of that record. So um, I think you have to be prepared to take responsibility for everything that goes on on that stage to one degree or another. Yeah. Um, I just wondered if you have a new artist who comes to you and you're just getting started and they say, okay, so we're going to need a playback rig. I wondered where your mind goes to with sort of like what kind of setup do you sort of automatically think about? Are you thinking sort of like, okay, it's going to be two MacBook Pros and uh, a Play 12 or what's, what's the sort of thing that you kind of go for? Well, yeah, it's, you know, I would say that I think nowadays, um, if it's a new artist and they're building a rig um, or, or need to get a rig built, um, you know, usually they don't want to spend too much money. I mean, that's the first thing. A playback rig is um, a proper playback rig with two MacBook Pros. And like I said, play audios are great. You know, I mean, I think those are the cheapest devices around now, really, that actually work and do what they need to do. But um it's like even still, by the time you get it cased properly and proper cabling and whatnot, you want to make sure it's under, you know, 23 kilograms, for, for, you know, for weight and whatnot. Yeah. You're still needing to spend sort of like, you know, it's, it's close to six, seven grand, really. Do you know what I mean? Depending yeah. on how deep into it you want to go. Obviously, you can make it more expensive or you can make it cheaper, but it's in that ballpark. So, um it really depends on on the artist and what they want to spend. But I would usually go play audio. At this stage, I would go play audio. It would just depend on what their ambitions were because the only thing with the play audios is there's, there's just not enough tracks. Um, yes. I, f- I find that I need to, in general, have... Um, for playback sessions now, um, you know, I would say I need a minimum of 12 channels, really. Um, so the playback... Yeah, you know... They're just if they're just like a couple channels short, really, of what's yeah. needed. What is one that you would prefer other than the Play Audio Twelve? I mean, I use I use Motus. They're, they're not too expensive, yes. so I, I, use, I use Motus as well. And, but again, I'll have sort of like I'll have two. So I've got like you know I've got I've got I, I have a playback rig also, and I've got like four Motus in it basically, um, and that's how I kind of do that. Yeah, because you know, but I think Motus or Play Audios are are kind of the benchmark for sort of like low cost playback systems. Obviously there's other ways you can go. Do you know, I heard something and it may not have been true, but it was like somebody said um, about a Jay-Z live show saying that they had um, something like, it seemed like it was something crazy, like 70 to 80 uh, tracks of playback that, that the uh, engineer needed to be prepared for. I think they were doing all over Dante. Um, Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just like absolutely nuts. Just can't. Well, it's it's. But you know what we say that. But actually, like um, the last system that got um, built for Stormzy, it did use Dante as well. Yeah. And I think that um, you know, I think at that kind of when you're really shooting for the top level and you know you're going to be touring and you know you're going to be, you know, you want things as easy as possible. And Dante is great for that. I think my only issue with Dante is that like. It, you know, like, let's say you get a playback tech in who everybody's not familiar with it. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's not common language yet. So let's say you build an amazing rig and it's like, great. But then that guy has to dip it out. And then the next guy isn't Dante Savvy. And one little thing goes wrong and it's like, shit, who's going to fix this? What's yeah. what's the deal? Do you know what I mean? So um, in general, you know, I, I always go for things that sometimes I will err on the side of simplicity over sort of like the absolute best scenario because, yeah. um, you know, you have to be able to maintain that. But again, like, for example, before um, 
lockdown kind of came in we were looking at building a rig for pussycat dolls and we were gonna um i'm pretty sure we were gonna use dante in that as well but again i will always work with um the playback tech to kind of figure out the best solution um for whatever the particular gig is um and, I, and i'll only put together rigs myself if it's something a bit smaller or, or like we'll hire them you know like again it's like for like a lot of times in the beginning um i will always say to an artist hey look you know, this is how much it's going to cost for you to build a rig or I've got a rig and you're welcome to hire it, you know, um, or sometimes the playback tech will hire their rig onto the gig, you know, and everybody likes to do that. But I always suggest to people to buy their own, but sometimes they just don't want to, you know, hit that kind of um, they don't want to spend that money straight off, you know. Um, yeah. So that's the way that tends to work out. Yeah. Um, what were you doing with the Pussycat Dolls? Was that for the sort of most recent uh, sort yeah. of thing that they're doing. I know, you know, I don't know if it was like sort of before Christmas. I can remember seeing them. They were on a bunch of uh, UK TV shows, you know, X Factor and yeah. I, I forget whatever. Uh, maybe there was something else with Ant, Ant and Deck that they were on, I think. Yeah, what, but it was it was essentially that. X Factor was the main thing. They, they basically planned a reunion um, and um, that was an X Factor performance. And, you know, on that particular, you know, my task then was to put together can't remember how long it was now actually i feel like it was maybe three four minutes whatever but it was a medley do you know what i mean yeah and that's sure. a common type of thing that'll happen with that type of artist or so with any artist we have to put together a tv medley so um yeah i i put together their kind of that was their big comeback you know um their comeback performance which kind of it did really well in terms of like reach and i don't know how many million views it got and whatnot but it did really well in terms of relaunching them then they did a few other tvs and they had a single and then they were supposed to be going on tour and then COVID happened and that kind of put everything back a year but yeah that's when i got involved with them just recently it's not like a long-term thing i, I literally remember starting that in november yeah sure oh wow well that's that's so cool um, listen, I've been I've been chatting to you for for quite a while, so I don't want to hold sure. you up too much longer. But um, no problem, man. I, but I love to give people a chance to you know plug themselves. I know you've got your own podcast. You do sure. a lot of things, so I just wanted to give you a chance to sort of like tell people what you're up to and where they can find you online. Sure, thanks a lot, man. Yeah, well, um, at the moment I can be found online. Um, my main personal in Instagram is at Kojo Music Official. And um, I'm revamping that a little bit, but um, that's where you'll find most things to do with me. I'll have a link to my website there, which is kojosamuel.com. Um, and there's basically a lot of information about the different work I do, um, links to some clips and videos and whatnot. And, you know, anything me is there. Um, I've also recently started a podcast called About the Players, which is um, basically a podcast essentially about and for session musicians or young musicians or people wanting to get into the session world. But I basically talk to um, musicians that are playing with, you know, high-end artists. It could be Rihanna, it could be Sam Smith, it could be Taylor Swift, it could be, you know, Jess Glenn, it could be Stormzy, yeah. whatever. And I talk to them about their careers, their paths, their journeys, how they sort of, you know, got to where they were as musicians. Because I feel like with a lot of the sort of music universities and music sort of courses available, there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of information about transitioning from, you know, your sort of studies to this, you know, music business world, which is kind of like the wild, wild west. <laughs> and it changes all the time. So um, the purpose of the About the Players podcast is to kind of just share a bit of that information for people that are interested. And um, anything to do with that can be found um, on Instagram at... Um, about the players. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. No worries. No well, worries. Kojo, thank you so much for your time. I really, really, sure. really appreciate it. No worries, man. Great talking with you. All right, guys, that's another episode of Ableton Cast. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Love some feedback from you. If you want to give me feedback on any, any sort of individuals that you uh, would love to hear me interview, you can email me at abletoncast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. I hope everybody is safe. I hope everybody's doing well. 